0: reading from Romans. Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this time, I'd like to invite
1: uh, the children uh, to join me in the back of the sanctuary for a uh, children's sermon. I'm coming to you today. All right, so if you want to just come right on over here, and you can just stand right on over here. We've got something back here to talk about. You want to come join us? Yeah. All right, so who can tell me what this is? Does anybody know what this is? It's got water in it on the top of it. Maybe you can tell me what this is. Yeah? It's a bowl. It is a bowl. Do we know what we use this bowl for? We use it for baptisms. So we call this a baptismal font, which is just a fancy way of saying this is where we do baptisms, is what we use uh, when we baptize people. And, uh, you know, there's water in here, and it's just regular water. But when we do a baptism, when we baptize somebody, we put the promises of God in the water And then we put that water on somebody, and we give God's promises uh, in that way. So what are some of God's promises in baptism? Does anybody know that? What kind of promises God makes? Yeah? That That he'll always forgive us? That's a good promise that God gives. That's right. God says, you are my child, my son or my daughter. And God says, I love you, and I'm happy with you. Those are pretty good promises from God, aren't they? Yeah, these are all the promises that we get in baptism. And usually when we baptize somebody, we take this font and we move it all the way up front there so that everybody can see when somebody's baptized. But when we don't, we keep it back here by the door. Do you have any guesses why we might keep it back here by the door and have water in it even if we're not baptizing anybody today? Well, we do it. So that when people come in for worship, they can, you know, put their fingers in the water and they can maybe make a little cross on their forehead or sometimes I'll make a cross on my whole body like this with the water. And uh, when you do that, you're reminding yourself of God's promise that, that God loves me and that God is happy with me like that. And then, after worship, when you're on your way out, uh, you can get a little water on your way out and put a little cross on your forehead or a big big cross on your whole body that God has promised uh, to love you, that you are God's child, and that God is happy with you. And so we carry our baptism wherever we go, whether we go to school or home or a friend's house or the car or even just out here in the fellowship hall. Anywhere we are, we carry that with us. We carry those promises with us. And so if we ever have something scary happen, well, we can know that God loves us and that God is happy with us. Or if we ever do something that we really wish we didn't do, we hurt somebody or uh, where we do something that, uh, that maybe we feel bad about, we can remember that God loves us and that God is happy with us. Or if we see somebody else who's having a hard time, who's sad or scared, we could even tell them that same promise, that God loves them. And God is happy with them, that they are God's child. This is the promise that we get in baptism. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for baptism. Help us to carry it everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Our holy gospel comes from Matthew chapter 10. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven." And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is the gospel of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this week and next week, our second readings are from the sixth chapter of Romans, Romans chapter six. And uh, so this week and next week, I'm going to focus on uh, Romans chapter six Because in my view, Romans chapter 6 is one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture, especially as regards uh, the Christian life, what it means to be a Christian in the world. Now, of course, anybody or any time, rather, that anybody tells you Uh, that this chapter or verse or book is the most important of the Bible. You always have to take that with a grain of salt because all of the the truths of Scripture, the the gospel, is diffused throughout the entirety of the Bible. You could look at any page in the Bible and find gospel there if you know what you're looking for. But this chapter, in Romans chapter 6, we find Paul laying out what it means to be Christian in the world uh, more straightforwardly, Than anywhere else in paul at least in my view or at least as straightforward as paul gets paul has a way of sort of meandering around as he writes but uh but so we're going to focus on that this week and next week so a little background the book of romans as we call it is actually a letter it's a letter written by uh the apostle paul who is uh one of the if not the most uh prolific evangelists and uh missionaries of the early church Uh, and he's writing this letter to uh, a group of Christians, a church, in the city of Rome, uh, the capital of the Roman Empire uh, in modern-day Italy, of course. And he's writing it to this group of Christians who he's never met. He hasn't been to Rome yet. He hopes to go to Rome. He eventually will make it to Rome later in his ministry, but at the time that he's writing this, uh, he's sort of introducing himself uh, to these Roman Christians uh, in Rome. And so Romans, we have this long uh, section that's most of the book of Romans that he's just laying out what he's been preaching. He's just laying out his proclamation to this church in Rome, sort of introducing himself uh, in this way. And so all of Romans, or especially the first half of Romans, is really Paul just laying out what we would call in the Lutheran tradition, the law and the gospel. He's laying out the law, the law especially given through Moses, the Ten Commandments, and uh, the other uh, uh, pieces of the law throughout Exodus uh, through Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, and the gospel, which he says right at the beginning is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And as he goes throughout, uh, kind of laying out his argument, uh, he makes uh, uh, an assertion that's maybe a bit surprising uh, to some of the people who are reading uh, his, his letter, some of these Christians in Rome, because he insists that salvation comes entirely apart from the law, that God gives the law of Moses not to deliver us from sin in any way, but rather that our salvation comes through another way the gospel he can say in romans 3 now the righteousness of god this is uh the righteousness that god gives by which god forgives us is made known apart from that means having nothing to do with the law or in uh just before our uh reading starts here at the end of chapter five uh we read this so he's talking about the problem of sin in the world of disobedience of us being separated from our creator and he writes this this is uh five uh verse 20 But law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. Law came in with the result that the trespass, that is sin, multiplied, was made worse, was magnified. That the law comes in not to make sin better, but actually to make sin worse. That the law doesn't come in to make us righteous, to make us saints but it actually makes us sinners even worse. It actually pushes us deeper into sin so that we are undeniably sinners. He goes on, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin exercised dominion that is ruled through death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification leading to eternal life. The law comes not to help us with our sin, to give us the tools that we want to overcome sin on our own, but rather to make us sinners so that God can then step in and have mercy in Jesus Christ, so that grace can rule. Well, this is a bit of a troubling thing. It makes us a bit uncomfortable to think that the law is not there for our salvation, but actually the gospel comes and sets us free from the law And it makes us uncomfortable for good reason, because we know that in this world, in this old world, we need the law. We need rules and laws to protect us from others and protect others from ourselves, and we need an authority who can back up those laws, a a government uh, that can enforce these laws. We know that if there were no laws in the world, that uh, the world would be even more chaotic and dangerous than it already is, and that's true. But as far as salvation is concerned, the law is not where it comes from. It only comes in the promise of God in the gospel, which Paul says is the power of God for salvation. This is a truly free grace that comes so freely that it comes regardless of our actions or of our uh, intents or even our desires, but it comes to us while we are still enemies of God. Paul writes, while we were enemies of God, Jesus Christ was given to die for us. God was already at work reconciling us to himself. Now, whenever you start talking about a really free grace like this, uh, completely uh, free from the law, the objection comes, well, if you take away the law, aren't people just going to you know, do whatever they want and what they want is going to be bad, that people are uh, not going to act uh, morally. They're going to act immorally if you take away uh, the law from them. Aren't people just going to act selfishly and we'll be back where we were? Or as Paul writes it, this is maybe another way of putting a similar objection. Well, if sin increases and grace abounds all the more that sin increases, shouldn't we continue in sin so that grace May abound shouldn 't we maximize our sins so that god 's forgiveness can be maximized in the same way paul 's answer of course, is no, but the way he answers is maybe a little bit surprising. It, it, probably if you were going to come up with a reason if uh, w- somebody asks you, well, if you, God forgives, why don 't you just sin and do what you want?" Maybe you would uh, appeal to the law in one way. Well, Jesus commands us uh, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus commands us to love each other as he has loved us. That is to give ourselves sacrificially for one another. Uh, So, of course not. Uh, And that's true. Uh, We have the commandments there. But Paul doesn't go there. Paul says, no, of course not. And he appeals not to the law, but to the gospel. He appeals, of all things, to baptism. Baptism. Paul says, if you are taking this objection, if this is your objection to this, then you're not taking your baptism seriously enough. Or he puts it this way. Don't you know, he says, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and let's say we have, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And he says at the end, therefore you also must consider yourselves dead in regards to sin and alive in regards to God in Christ Jesus. In baptism, we are changed. In baptism, we are placed into a new world, a new reality. No longer are we under the power of sin and death and law, but we are placed in a new kingdom, in a new creation, one that is not governed by sin or death or law, but only by the promise of God, by the forgiveness of sins, by what we call the gospel, Jesus Christ raised from the dead. We are placed in a new reality, and it simply doesn't make sense to live as though the old reality was still our defining one, as though it was sin that was still in power rather than grace. It simply doesn't make sense to continue in sin. Why would you still hold on to those old patterns of behavior? For when Jesus Christ was killed and raised from the dead, all of reality, all of history was divided into a before and an after, an old and a new. This death and resurrection of Jesus becomes the center of all reality and everything is changed. The mystery of our faith then is that this old and this new, uh, they still hold on together for a while. They overlap here and now. We live in a kingdom the old kingdom, which has already been put to death, which is dying, which will at some point come to an end. And yet we also live in the new kingdom, the kingdom of which Jesus Christ was the first fruits risen from the dead, this kingdom which has already begun and will continue forever with God. We live now in the time between the ends of the ages, as it's called in Hebrew. This, or Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews. this time when we live in two kingdoms, one subject to sin and death, one eternally subject only to the gospel. This is what it is to be Christian then. To be Christian is to not be in one kingdom, but in two. To be Christian is not to be one person, but two, old and new, overlapping for the time being. This new kingdom, this new you, is subject only to God's promise. The promise given in baptism, the same promise Jesus received in his baptism. You are my child, my beloved, and with you I am well pleased. As a Christian, this defines us and nothing else. The law is still there for our old self because our old self still has selfish desires and still seeks to exploit others for its own benefit. Uh, We all know this. But the true you is not that. That you will come to an end. The true you is the one who receives the forgiveness of sins, who trusts in the word of the Father, which calls you into being, that you are mine. I have chosen you. I am pleased with you. To be Christian, then, is to live in these two kingdoms, not using our old self for our own benefit, but using it for the benefit of others because the new you has already received everything it needs from the Father. The old you can be used, given away, for the sake of the world, for the sake of your neighbor, for the sake of the needs you see around you. To be a Christian is to live in the world that you cannot see or taste or touch, except maybe in fleeting glimpses, but the one you hear from God, the one you can only believe and trust and to use yourself in this world which you can see and taste and touch for the sake of those others in need because you don't need it anymore for your own benefit. This is what it means to live by faith and not by sight, by what you're promised from God and not what you experience and see. So brothers and sisters, Let me again give you that promise which makes you new, which defines you, the promise which was poured over you in your baptism, the promise which will accompany you to and through the grave. God says to you, you are my child, my beloved, my chosen. With you, I am well pleased. Amen.